Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday the 7th of November. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese concludes today his four-day visit to China, the first Australian leader to visit the country since 2016. In Beijing on Monday, Mr. Albanese met President Xi Jinping. Following the meeting between the two leaders, Mr. Albanese said there had been significant progress in relations with China. And President Xi said China and Australia stood to become trusting partners and were on the correct path of improving and developing relations. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will meet Chinese Vice Premier He Feng on Thursday and Friday for talks on issues ranging from U.S. concerns about unfair Chinese economic practices to potential areas for cooperation such as climate change and debt relief for low-income countries. Ms. Yellen said in an opinion piece published by the Washington Post, I will speak to my counterparts about our serious concerns with Beijing's unfair economic practices, including its large-scale use of non-market tools, its barriers to market access, and its coercive actions against US firms in China. And that meeting comes ahead of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which takes place in San Francisco from November the 15th to the 17th. China hasn't yet confirmed President Xi's attendance at that summit. Japan's business activity expanded in October, but at its softest pace this year, according to a private survey. The Aljibin Bank final composite PMI for October was revised upwards to 50.5 from a flash print of 49.9, signalling a tenth successive monthly increase in private sector business activity in Japan. South Korean stocks led the gains in Asia on Monday after the country reimposed a ban on short selling. The Cosby surged 5.7% and the COSDAX surged 7.3%, uh, 7.3%, the best session for both indices since March 2020. The Financial Services Commission announced Sunday that South Korea will ban stocks short selling until June 2024, following the discovery of what it called massive illegal naked short selling by global investment banks. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks traded higher on Monday as investors prepared for a series of speeches from Federal Reserve officials this week, including Fed Chairman Jerome Powell on Thursday. The S&P 500 edged up 0.2% to end at 4,366. It was the sixth consecutive day of gains on growing hopes that major central banks have finished raising interest rates. The Dow added 35 points, or 0.1%, to settle at 34,096. The Nasdaq Composite jumped a third of a percent to finish at 13,519. And the Nasdaq notched seven days of wins for the first time since January. Treasuries sold off throughout the session to see the majority of Friday's upside reversed. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note rose 9 basis points to 4.65%. The yield on the 2-year note rose 11 basis points to 4.94% on Monday. Brent crude oil closed a third of a percent higher at $85.18 per barrel and the price of gold, which has rallied more than 8% since Hamas's attack on Israel on October the 7th, fell 0.7% to $1,977 an ounce. 
The US dollar stabilised after sliding 1.4% last week in its biggest weekly drop since July. On Monday, the US dollar index rose 0.2%. The US dollar Japanese yen rose above 150, adding half a percent to 150.05 yen. And the onshore yuan rose 0.4% to 7.2695 renminbi, ahead of China's trade data due out later this morning. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index added 0.9% to 3,058, the highest level in almost three weeks. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose 302 points, or 1.7%, to 17,967. That's the highest since October the 12th, and the tech index surged 4.1%. Traders welcomed a pledge from Premier Li Chang Sunday that Beijing would expand access to markets and boost imports. And this morning, looks like the Hang Seng is going to give up a little bit of that gain. Futures pointing to a decline of about 110 points at the open. That's about 0.6%. Hang Seng set to start the day at about 17,850. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's Tuesday morning. And we have with us Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, our regular Tuesday morning correspondent. And we also have with us James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And over in uh, Washington, D.C. this morning, Barry Wood, our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster. Nice to speak with you again, Barry. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, look, let's start with the data, Barry. Let's start with the U.S. because we had the non-farms payrolls data out on Friday. Jobs increased 150,000 last month. That was less than expected. Um, Economists had been expecting a total of 180,000. Uh, Last month's figure was downwardly revised to 297,000, and the August figure for new jobs also revised downwards by 62,000. The unemployment rate climbed to a 21-month high of 3.9% from 3.8% in September, and the survey of households showed more than 200,000 increase in those who had lost their jobs or completed a temporary job. And the report also showed month- monthly wage growth slowing and the participation rate ticking down. Now, Barry, in the past, when we've talked about these job numbers, we've always been lauding just how good they look and how great they are. But we seem to be seeing the first signs of the labour market cracking, don't we, in this latest report? Well, I wouldn't use the word cracking. Um, I, I think, listening to what you just said, I think you could make the case this is still a Goldilocks economy. I mean, look at that. Inflation rate is coming down. The unemployment rate is at a 30, 40 year low. You've got economic growth. Last report, nearly 5%. Stock market doing pretty well. Certainly a lot better than the the terrible activity of 2022. So, no, I wouldn't say it's cracking, but I would say it's in line with what Jay Powell would like to have happen. He wants to see a slowing economy. He wants to see interest rates having their effect. And whatever the lag is, it may be having an effect. But cracking, I think that's too strong. Do you think... Barry, I would I would just add that this is the, this is the end of the summer. It's the autumn time period in, in in the U.S. economy, and that's the time when the summer jobs go, um, and and we don't have the Christmas jobs that have yet come into the e- equation. But it is usual at this time of year to see an increase in unemployment in the U.S. and the uh, and a lowering of the 
of the jobs market. So I wouldn't be too surprised by the, these numbers. Do you think it can Sorry, continue, this Goldilocks economy? Uh, I think that's the intention of the uh, Fed, and I think that would be a, a desirable outcome for, for many people. I can't see too much on the horizon to, to, to create um, a lot of worry or damage at the moment, other than these, these wars. Uh, and, and probably we're going to have to work through next year uh, an election year, and so there'll be a lot of um, contra cyclical discussion that will um, serve up to um, worry people in the economic world. Mm. James, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, I use the word cracking. Maybe the, the better word is a slowdown because I am detecting in this <laughs> in this jobs report, uh, we're starting to see a slowdown. There are layoffs increasing. The unemployment, uh, the number of people um, unemployed is now rising. It's up about half a percent over the last three months or so. What do you think? Are you seeing any signs now that maybe the labour market is starting to slow in the U.S.? Yeah, I surely hope so. I, I agree with Stuart. Uh, it's uh, it's a seasonal thing at play, and uh, but again, it's it's not just this one set of data. It's uh, from the the productivity data uh, from last Thursday. We can pretty much see the uh, wage component is uh, slowing down at a pace that is uh, uh, greater than the market market expected. And so, I, I think that the U.S. market surely now have the appearance of a Goldilocks economy, but uh, I'm not sure how that how long that's going to last because we can see the uh, the major indices in the U.S. Uh, bounce back for six to seven consecutive trading sessions. And uh, there uh, are a lot of uh, factors coming into play to make that happen. The wage number is one thing. The cooling down of, uh, of labor markets are probably at play. And I think the most important thing is Apart from last night, the uh, <clears throat> the uh, yields on the long end of the yield curve are coming down a little bit, and uh, uh, the uh, Treasury is announcing to uh, trim a little on the issuance of longer-term uh, bonds, and I think that helped a lot on uh, having the 30-year yield moving down 30 bips uh, for the week, for mm -hmm. last week, and uh, yeah, that that together with uh, don't forget we have a pretty good uh, earning season so far uh, it, it was there there was some hiccups in the middle but right now we're having a 3.6 year over year growth for S&P 500 EPS average EPS and uh, it was better it it is better than the negative 0.3% decline uh, estimated at the beginning of this earning season so and then there was 81% uh, of uh, S&P 500 uh, companies already announced their earnings, and among those 81 percent, 82 actually beats earnings, uh, beats estimates. So that's a good number again. And then we can see the S&P uh, is not that expensive. It's not like the past two uh, earnings seasons where uh, the uh, the one year four PE for S&P 500 is was uh, above five year average and ten year average. Right now, it's just above. 10-year average and it's not above five-year average it's mm. about 7.17.9 it's it's an, an i think it's a benign number and uh, so i think the that uh, accompanied by the extreme short squeeze uh, for wednesday and thursday of last last week <laughs> and so uh, that's how we see this all coming together 
and pushed the indices higher. But again, I don't, I don't think the uh, short squeeze is going to last uh, that long. So, so yesterday or uh, today, we can see the the uh, S&P and the Nasdaq did not rise that much. Uh, mm. That's probably it. Okay. I mean, Barry, if um, looking at, uh, as James has described, the market reaction to this job state has been pretty euphoric. Investors have been buying stocks, they've been buying um, bonds, pushing down yields, and they've basically taken the view uh, that the the, the era of rate rises is is over, not just in the US, but also in the Eurozone, in the UK as well. But shouldn't we be a bit careful? Because Jerome Powell has never said that, has he? He hasn't at all um, indicated that, that rate rises are over, and it's not unthinkable that the Fed could raise rates again. That's quite right. Look, I think, first of all, you've got remarkable unanimity among the three of us about the economy. It's slowing, but it's still good. Mm-hmm. As to looking forward, it's, um, it's, it's, not a, it's not a bad picture. And um, just remind me what you asked. The, what was the question? Um, well, Jerome Powell has never taken further rate rises oh, off the table in right. the way that the markets there's are sort no, of assuming. There's no, there's no doubt about that, Peter, that there is a perception that the rate rises are over. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, people are not talking about rate declines in 2024, although if the economy slows substantially, there will be more talk of that. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the reduction in the in the 10 year yield reflects that reality. But Jay Powell is still focused very much on inflation. And he does indeed hold open the possibility of a further rate rise. But there won't be a rate rise in December. And we'll see what happens in the new year. Mm. I mean, Stuart, yeah. do, do you concur with that? So that maybe investors are getting a little bit too euphoric over this? Yeah, surprisingly, I'm I'm in agreement with what Barry says because usually Barry and I disagree on on the interest <laughs> rate situation in the U.S. Um, I yes, I, I I entirely agree. Jay Powell's using the potential of a rate rise as a threat in the in the case of anything um, maybe going untoward on his. Um, um, inflation projections. But I think once we get into 2024, he will find it politically quite difficult to increase interest rates. Mm. Um, I think that uh, if his last real opportunity to increase interest rates will be in December, if he doesn't do it then, then I think you can be pretty assured that um, that the unlikely unless something really dramatic happens it will be unlikely to see any any rate rises in 2024 but i i also don't think that we'll see any reduction in interest rates certainly not in the first half of next year and then during the second half um we then get to the really serious political side of things in the u.s and interest rate reductions will certainly help joe biden so they're so going to keep away from. The they're going to keep away from doing anything close to the election, presumably. Yeah, either way, yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. J- James, one of the things J- Jerome Powell has been saying is that the bond market is doing some of the tightening for him. This this yeah, rise in yields yeah. is, um, you know, is effectively um, equivalent to at least another quarter of a basis point, a quarter of a percent on on interest rates. But now, of course, um, it's doing some unwinding for him as well as as these uh, as these yields fall back down. That reduces the uh, the, the tightening from the financial markets. So it's sort of a, a self defeating thing, isn't it? Really. 
Yeah, J-Power and the FOMC has always seen the FCI or the Financial Condition Index as a one of the benchmarks that they value the effectiveness of their rate policy. And back in June, when they issued their the June minutes, it was pretty clear that they were not happy with the FCI being so loose. So I think after the July meeting, towards the end of July, we can see the FCI tightening. All the way towards uh, the beginning, uh, the uh, the middle of the uh, all the way towards mid October, and uh, then it starts to lose a little bit again. And uh, but the thing is, even with the FCI this tight, even with the real yields uh, tumbling around 2.5 percent, and with 30 yields, 30 percent, uh, 30 year yields at above 2.5.1 percent. Uh, we can still see the uh, the city uh, economic surprise index growing higher and higher towards the like the peak of the year. So uh, the one thing is, even though the FCI and the interest rates are doing uh, and the bond yields are doing part of the the Fed's job, uh, I don't think it's transmitting that effectively towards the economy of the U.S. Okay. Now, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is going to meet Chinese Vice Premier He Lifeng on Thursday and Friday for talks on issues ranging from U.S. concerns about unfair Chinese economic practices to potential areas for cooperation, such as climate change and debt relief for low-income countries. Ms. Yellen wrote an opinion piece which was published by the Washington Post earlier this week, and she said, I will speak to my counterpart about our serious concerns with Beijing's unfair economic practices, including its large-scale use of non-market tools, its barrier to market access and its coercive actions against uh, U.S. firms in China. And Barry, clearly this is obviously coming just ahead of the Apex Summit, which is in San Francisco on November the 15th uh, to the 17th. Do you think uh, this meeting is going to be crucial in President Xi Jinping himself deciding whether he's going to attend the summit or not? Oh, I, I think it's already determined, barring some disaster, that he'll be in San Francisco and I think that, uh, you know, the meeting last week with the foreign minister and President Biden has put that in train. Look, Ms. Yellen speaks of intensified discussion with China. This is all exceedingly positive. These two countries want to keep the economic relationship stable. Ms. Yellen, like the president, has to walk a very delicate line in terms of not being seen as soft on China, but not upsetting the relationship, basically. This is a huge improvement from six months ago, 12 months ago. I think it sets the stage for cooperation economically, while all the other disagreements about Taiwan, the South China Sea, all of that remain in place. But I think that uh, clearly both sides are indicating that they need each other, and the meeting between Ms. Yellen and her counterpart in Beijing in San Francisco, that's a huge plus. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think this is, this is a very positive uh, and an ongoing positive issue. Um, I think it's also been rather helpful that uh, the Australian Prime Minister met with Xi Jinping yesterday. Um, you know, this is showing that um, China has uh, perhaps... Um, decided that it will be willing to talk a little bit more to the rest of the world. It's opening up a bit more to the rest of the world. It's not as if the rest of the world didn't want to talk more to China. It's China just didn't didn't make it very easy. Um, I agree. I think Xi Jinping 
um, probably doesn't uh, announce his diary ahead of time, but he'll certainly um, not want to miss the opportunity of going to San Francisco and, and almost certainly going to San Francisco and then meeting with Joe Biden. I mean, it's a given, but it, it's the sort of thing that when you're that senior in the world of politics, you just don't announce beforehand because of all the other consequences that could occur as a result of doing so. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a lot of positives to be seen at the moment um, in this respect, and um, maybe we'll see some more movement. Maybe I mean Xi Jinping has hardly travelled during the COVID period, so so now that COVID's over for all intents and purposes, let's see whether that comes back during the winter. But if if it is over, then we may even see him going to Europe. Mm, okay, James, are you seeing signs here of an improvement in relations, positive signs that maybe uh, China and the US can improve their economic ties at least? Yeah, there was a, a, an, an article published in the People's Daily uh, last week uh, stating it's to the mutual benefit of both the US and, the, and China to have their relationship worked out. So I think uh, that, that thing, that is actually a change in attitude of the propaganda against the U.S. And that propaganda had been going on for about two to three years during the COVID times. And uh, so that's, I think it's a pretty apparent change in direction of uh, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, Chinese government that is uh, approaching the U.S. or approaching the rest of the world, uh, especially now that China is talking to Australia again. And... Uh, uh, I think that's a good sign to uh, at least uh, a good sign interpreted by the market because uh, the RMB, the, the offshore yuan, has been uh, on the rise since yesterday morning. And I think it's got some to do with this news. The, uh, originally, I think the, uh, the Xi Jinping-Biden meeting is going gonna, gonna to happen, and I, but I wasn't expecting that much because I, I was thinking the only thing that they will come in, in agreement with is that they do not agree over a, a spectrum of topics. <laughs> but right now, I'm, I'm expecting, I'm having a little uh, more expectation for this meeting to, to see what really comes out. And uh, yeah, I think it's actually like the article in the People's Daily said, it's, it is indeed. Uh, for the mutual benefit of both the U.S. and China. So, so let's just see. Mm. But it, it's nice that they're talking. Um, but do you, are you optimistic that we're going to see maybe a real policy change of some sort? Because the U.S. is still making it very clear it's not prepared to negotiate on anything to do with national security. So sanctions on semiconductor equipment manufacturing and, and the, the likes are all going to stay in place. Um, so is there much hope for any sort of policy improvements, any real outcome? Yeah, that, well, that my is own the guess. hard part. Yeah, Sorry. yeah I, I, James, you're right. Um, that's the hard part. And th there's, there's too much. It's going to be a difficult meeting because they're going to air their grievances. And uh, I think that um, the best we can hope for is activating some of these new devices that have been talked about when the two sides have been meeting over the last few months. You know, they can talk about climate, they can talk about digital services. And uh, the APEC meeting is important in that context, but I don't think there's gonna be a breakthrough, but it's the beginning of a process that has really been upset in the past year. So I, again, I think all of us seem to be saying the same thing. We're optimistic. James? 
Yeah, that's really hard. I I, I agree with uh, Barry. Um, it's uh, it's it's hard. I think the U the U.S. has made it made it pretty clear that uh, they will not back up in 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 areas that you just mentioned. And I think the best outcome that we can expect out of this meeting is uh, it, that they uh, I don't know they agree to to not being so hostile against each other. And uh, I I really don't know what else to expect from this meeting and uh, the, the only good sign that i've seen is the the uh, the propaganda against the u.s since the trade war has somewhat been ended and uh yeah that's about it okay barry is there um a, a contro- controversy brewing over john lee and whether or not he was invited to apac the, the china <laughs> committee has written a letter to the state department haven't they asking them to clarify it because obviously john lee is sanctioned and the u.s has said it won't invite sanctioned people to the uh to the to the summit but john lee says he's received a personal invitation to go but unfortunately he's busy and can't actually go so he's sending well, Paul Chan you know, instead. diplomacy Diplomacy can work in wondrous ways. I mean, <laughs> that was um, that was really well executed, I thought, by uh, by Mr. Lee. Uh, his schedule is busy, so and, and that takes the pressure off the Americans. They didn't have to say anything really, and maybe they'll say something more. But the other question that they were worried about with uh, with the San Francisco APEC was was Russia. I mean, after all, uh, Russia is a member of APEC. And has hosted APEC meetings in the past. But what if uh, Vladimir Putin said he wanted to come? Well, that wouldn't do, even though the United States is not a member of the criminal court. They have no obligation to uh, to arrest him in line with the, the international court. So, I look, I think it's well done. Is Is this over? I suspect so. Okay, well, we shall, we shall see. Let's move on. Um, Stuart, let me ask you about Premier Li Chang, what he said on Sunday at the China International Import Expo, which is uh, which took place in Shanghai. He said, uh, China's going to further expand market access and imports, promote opening up and market opportunities, remove barriers to foreign investment um, in manufacturing. Uh, he said the country's imports of goods and services are expected to reach a cumulative $17 trillion over the next five years. He also vowed to protect the rights and interests of foreign investors in accordance with the law. Um, now, that comes um, after foreign direct investment into China has turned negative for the first time since records began back in 1998. Do you think, Stuart, uh, that there's signs here of a, of a change, um, that, that maybe China does now uh, need more foreign investment, and, and this is a sign that maybe it's going to be more welcoming to overseas companies? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say that the, the comments that he is quoted as saying, uh, we've heard them before. We've heard them many times before. So there's nothing new in that. The question is whether they actually do something, which is what they don't do. Um, most of the time, they, 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 most of the time, we found that uh, for a lot of uh, uh, different industries, China will say it's open and yet it isn't. Um, it makes it difficult. There are, as uh, you quoted earlier from Janet Yellen, um, there are non-market forces that make it difficult for companies to enter the market or participate in the market. So anything, anything at all that is done to improve that um, will be welcomed by uh, all businesses from all over the world. Um, will, will it actually happen? Well, 
in theory, yes. And, and does China need it to happen? Yes, because the Chinese economy is not doing as well as it used to. I think China is, is beginning to realize that it does need to open up a bit more. And, and the barriers to entry that have been put up, and there, there are plenty of them, um, will come down. But they'll come down slowly because it's different industries, all of which have their own um, run and control. But um, that does, that's also why it's potentially quite good for Hong Kong, because it does mean that many of these uh, American businesses, European and um, uh, Japanese businesses, may well find that coming via Hong Kong will help them quite a bit. And that's what John Lee, in, uh, who is in uh, Shanghai at the moment, um, but will be back today, um, that's what he's trying to get across, so the, the fact that Hong Kong is the gateway for many of these businesses. Mm. James, the markets obviously like these comments, or certainly the Chinese markets um, anyway. I think what, what the statistic that's interesting is foreign direct investment turning negative for the first time yeah. since records yeah. began. That's quite significant, isn't it? And yeah. it seems to suggest overseas companies are no longer reinvesting their profits in China. They're, they're taking, them, uh, taking them out. Yeah, the foreign FDI actually was uh, from January to September of this year is actually one-fourth of the entire of, of what it was entire year last year and it's about one eighth of 2021 so i, th I think the, uh, the the statement that the premier made uh, about uh, attracting more foreign investments especially in manufacturing i think that's that comes at no surprise because everybody saw that uh, fdi uh, number and mm -hmm. the, the thing is still I think China has never said that it's going to close its door to uh, to all the foreign investors. It always welcomes uh, foreign foreigners to invest in their in their businesses. But the problem is uh, with this tension between China and the U.S. Uh, foreign investors are kind of uh, having this dilemma of choosing sides, and I I don't think the business side of the world wants to choose sides between two uh, superpowers around the world so that's probably the main reason and and yeah they they've said that many times that they want foreign capital foreign investors to come into china and they have done a lot of them uh, a lot of policies to make that happen but the the thing is is it's like like store said it's not new and uh, they made such a statement because they've seen the fdi figures Mm. And then what they seem to be doing now is switching from investing in uh, property and infrastructure to investing in manufacturing. But of course, that doesn't guarantee that they're going to find productive areas in manufacturing either uh, to invest in, does it? Yeah, manufacturing is the is area that the FDI declined the most. So mm. uh, the for the limited FDI that would flow into China, it went into services. So uh, I, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if they can really draw interest uh, from foreign investors to invest in manufacturing in China because a lot of the well the uh, the uh, <clears throat> the manufacturing uh, side of China is largely still intact and I know some of the uh, factories are trying to move their manufacturing side to uh, other parts of Asia but it's a long process it's probably going to take the whole thing uh, it's probably going to take about uh, ten years uh, to move the entire supply chain out of china so china still plays an important role but the thing is uh, i'm not sure if foreign investors uh, at the uh, phase of uh, this uh, supply chain exodus are still willing to invest in china especially in manufacturing
Mm. Yeah, and that's the big issue. And James is absolutely right. Uh, A lot of the big manufacturers are moving their their factories to India and Vietnam and uh, other places in in Asia. Thailand has taken quite a lot over the last few years. I I wouldn't say 10 years, though. It takes, I think it can be quite quick. And some of these locations are already well set up to to take them on straight away so that i think is what is worrying to china that is no longer the factory for the world because others are competing and in some instances with lower costs um and so that that is that's why china needs to take some action but Barry, even if China succeeded in this and uh, ramped up investment in manufacturing, started to sell those goods all around the world again, I get the impression the US, the EU in particular, are not so willing anymore to be the importer of all these Chinese goods and see the trade, uh, their trade deficits go up even more. That's right. There's no doubt about that. And that's why Janet Yellen and other policymakers in Europe and America are speaking of of uh, diversification and uh, no decoupling, but diversification and de-risking. It's all happening, just as James was outlining. So that takes time, and that could be reversed. But they've got uh, a, a Chinese leader who is perceived and probably is much more concerned about a state-led economy than a market-led economy. And that's been a significant shift. Let's finally talk about the markets. The, uh, the, the big news yesterday was South Korea banning stock short selling until June 2024 to allow regulators to what it says actively improve rules and systems. The Financial Services Commission announced Sunday that following the discovery of massive illegal naked short selling by global investment banks. Uh, short selling is going to be banned for companies in the Cosby and COSDAQ indices from Monday uh, until the end of June next year. And that caused a huge rally um, in South Korean markets uh, yesterday. Um, Stuart, what is wrong with short selling? I, I don't really understand why it gets such a bad name uh, and why people shouldn't be allowed to sell short. <laughs> well, Peter, you're a trader by by trade, um, so you you would love to see anything that enhances trade. Hmm. But Asia traditionally has always uh, di- disliked the idea of short selling, um, and naked short selling is even worse. Where um, the the owner of assets does, well, sorry, the, the the perpetrator, if you like, of of naked <laughs> short selling. Um, doesn't even own any assets to, to make the well, um, make the sale. Yeah, but you can and borrow them. You can borrow them. You, you can, yeah, but but the point is that you're borrowing them after the event, not before. So you don't actually own them at the time of, of, of making that. Now, that's something that Asia has traditionally, um, for as long as I've been here, disliked. Every market had put a ban on short selling for for. for at different times yes it's opened up and yeah more and more of the big american investment banks have been in the market to do it and and they do it because they can make a lot of money out of it if they get if they get the choices right um but they don't enhance the economy as a result and and that's that's probably one of the reasons why many of the markets uh, are, are trying to put a put a stop to it or or curb it for a while 
So, James, let's get your thoughts on this. I mean, explain to me what is wrong with someone, an investor, who decides that a share is undervalued and therefore wants to buy it, um, but can't decide that a share is overvalued and, and can therefore go and sell it. What, what's so wrong with that? Uh, it's highly speculative. Spe- uh, it's purely speculative, I guess. That's the only Both are speculative, but, uh, aren't they? Both are, buying yeah, and uh, selling. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, in Hong Kong, there is no uh, naked shorts allowed. And uh, you have to borrow the uh, the uh, stocks that you want to short beforehand. And to, uh, also, you have to obey the uptick rule. So mm. it's it's even stricter in Hong Kong than in Korea. Well, you can you can go with all the uh, <clears throat> the theoretical... Uh, uh, things with uh, naked shorts because the price can go down. Just but but they haven't just banned go up indefinitely. They haven't just banned naked short selling. They've banned all short selling. I mean, I can understand that you know you've got to go and borrow the stock because you need to settle it, and therefore you don't want to cause failures in the clearing system. But South Korea's banned any short selling, even if you borrow the stock. Oh, that's that's uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting because I I thought. If you want to institu- institutional investors go to go into some regional markets, uh, shorts have to be allowed for mm. them to hedge mm-hmm. their risks. Yeah, that's the same problem with China, and you really can't hedge your risk in China. You have to hedge uh, the 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 China stock risk through Hong Kong. So yeah, I, Ch- Korea has been a somewhat closed capital markets in Asia, and uh, you can't really operate. Uh, a uh, you can't really trade Korean stocks or obtain Korean IPO shares uh, through a omnibus account uh, from a foreign broker. So I guess they just want to keep their uh, capital markets even more tight uh, and uh, uh, excluding all the foreign factors that might have placed some harm uh, to the Korean markets. That's my only guess. But I, I think, I mean, Stuart, if you look at this, it, it damages actually the Korean market, doesn't it? Because you, it would be nice to have a hedge fund industry that, that helps the liquidity um, in the market. And I know the regulators basically say, you know, the, the, the rally that they saw when they first banned short selling was called the people's rally because retail investors were buying, institutions were selling. Um, and therefore, the retail investors got upset when we started to see a correction um, in the market. But presumably, actually, this rally doesn't help retail investors because they're having to massively now overpay for some of these shares uh, that they want to buy because the short selling uh, ban has, has caused this enormous ramp. Well, I don't know that you're actually seeing over overpricing either. The market is it sets the price. It goes up and down in accordance with the, so the you, demand. So you need sellers to help make that price. Well, you do. But, um, uh, Peter, I'm not so sure that I, I think we should be here to defend the interests of the hedge fund industry. They're perfectly capable of looking after themselves. Uh, Peter the trader. <laughs> but yeah, all right. Peter the trader, right? Um, but it, but it is true that, uh, of course, you do need all the different uh, functions in a market to make it accessible. Um, and that may be... Uh, one of the penalties that will be faced by Korea in in the short term. But bear in mind, they're only talking about doing this until the middle of next year, um, and then they'll review the situation. So I suspect that uh, this is not going to be a long-term thing, but uh, maybe there's a, you know, on their part, uh, a, a reason to burn out a few players. And after all, they've, uh, the market has highlighted the fact that it is only two players that have really caused this situation to occur. So mm-hmm. 
Um, don't get worried too much on the behalf of the hedge fund industry. They'll be they'll be fine. <laughs> and there are plenty of other markets out there for them. I'm sure there's a long-term impact on this, though, because MSCI is reviewing whether or not South Korea uh, can be classified as a developed market. And something like this doesn't really help uh, South Korea's case, does it? You want to have free um, and open markets with so, good price South discovery. Korea has been, South Korea has been a developed market for quite a long time. It's just a... It's just the matter of whether the classification by MSCI occurs, but there are other index providers who have already done that, and um, and and attitudinally, um, the the idea of having a, um, an index provider classifying these markets um, is no longer so, so important because fund managers can make their own decisions on these things. Barry, final word to you on, on this. I mean, in the US, short selling, providing you borrow the stock, it's okay, isn't it? Well, it is. But let's not forget what might be obvious to people who are not traders or investors. Capitalism is popular only to an extent. And the difference between investing and speculating is something that politicians can pick up on very quickly, like the senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. So, yeah, I, you know, you can see all the movies made about uh, the <laughs> evils of speculation. Uh, as to short selling, look, Korea is a closed market in many ways, isn't it? I mean, companies can't really invest in Korea and own lots of assets in Korea. I mean, this is a very nationalistic economy. So I can't say more because I don't know anymore. Okay, well, very interesting discussion this morning. Thank you all very much for your thoughts there on a, on a wide range of topics. You heard Stuart Orcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, James Wong, Chief Executive Officer at Cathasia Securities, and our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Enzio von File, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a great day. Money Talk 